Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Chapter 5. Valley of Antisense. Wilhelm Bauer was born in Austria in May 1885, and initially he progressed as expected. He cut his first tooth at seven months. He held his own feeding bottle to his mouth and was even talking a little by the time he was one. In the summer of 1886, however, he began to get fat all over, his doctor reported. Though a chubby baby was a good sign, especially then, this felt more like dough, he said, and the boy's mother thought he'd been stronger when thinner. Soon enough, Wilhelm began having trouble sitting upright. In the autumn, he contracted whooping cough. He cleared the illness, but his weakness increased and his hands took up a tremor. He lost the ability to use his legs, though he could still make slight movements at the ankle joint and flex his toes. He could no longer bring his hands to his mouth. His eyes didn't fully close when he slept, and he began having difficulty breathing. On April 4th, 1888, the boy's mother took him to St. Anna's Children's Hospital in Vienna. He had intermittent fever there the month of April, and he died May 1st, not quite three years old. Wilhelm had a younger brother, George, who wasn't yet two at the time, but who had already lost use of his legs. George followed a similar path and eventually died too. The family's third child, Franz, another boy, was healthy. A neurologist named Guido Verdnig at the Pathological Anatomical Institute in Graz, Austria, took up the case. Verdnig didn't know what to make of the two boys. It looked somewhat like muscular dystrophy, but that didn't feel quite right. He performed an autopsy on Wilhelm and examined George and in doing so made a key discovery. The disease, he thought, was due to a primary degeneration of the spinal cord's motor pathways. He published a paper on his findings in 1891, roughly translated as, Two Early Infantile Hereditary Cases of Progressive Muscular Atrophy, Simulating Dystrophy, but on a Neural Basis. Johann Hoffmann, a professor of neurology at Heidelberg, Germany, was not far behind. He published his first paper in 1893, based on his observations of the same illness. Over the years, the research community coalesced around the work of these two men, and for a while the illness was called Verdnig-Hoffman disease. Today, it's broadly referred to as spinal muscular atrophy, and it's understood to come in four severities. What these men had seen was type 2, bad enough to kill the children, but there are more severe cases, which occur even earlier in a child's life. Verdnig, for all his noteworthy early work in the field, received no real recognition in his lifetime. He became a paraplegic and was bedridden for 12 years before dying in 1919 in a sanatorium, all but forgotten. And progress against spinal muscular atrophy, as insidious and heartbreaking as the disease was, languished. Children afflicted with it were born in seemingly good health, but then developed small symptoms incrementally, almost out of nowhere. Their muscles wasted away, they regressed, and they died. For more than 100 years, medicine could do nothing against this. And sometimes it seemed like it would always be that way. Those born with spinal muscular atrophy were just unlucky, and that was the hard truth of it. 
From Nature Biotechnology, I'm Brady Huggett, and this is Hope, Lies, and Dreams. After the failure of ISIS's lead compound, Alcaforsin, in a phase three trial for Crohn's disease in 1999, the company's stock fell below $4 per share. It had been nearly five years since the stock had been that low. In that period, ISIS had gotten a product approved, increased its clinical pipeline to seven programs, and had three other compounds at the preclinical stage. It had grown its already formidable scientific talent, greatly increased its patent portfolio, and established itself as a leader in the field of oligonucleotides. Yet here it was, with its stock trading lower than it had five years before, and its working capital draining away. Stan's response to the failure, predictably, was to throw himself into the job. That had always been his way, whether he was stocking shelves at the Tech Corner drugstore as a boy, or facing a dearth of compounds in SmithKline's pipeline. Yet, in fraught times like this, he was more demanding of the team than ever and less patient. So it's safe to assume that in early 2000, just after the Alicoforsen failure and amid the laying off of friends and rising money woes, the mood at ISIS was at a historic low. They would need to raise funds, but with their stock so poorly valued on Wall Street, it wasn't clear how that could happen. But then a stroke of fortune arrived that had nothing to do with ISIS, the genomics bubble. Here's President Bill Clinton speaking from the White House in June 2000. Today, the world is joining us here in the East Room to behold a map of even greater significance. We are here to celebrate the completion of the first survey of the entire human genome. Without a doubt, this is the most important, most wondrous map ever produced by humankind. The moment we are here to witness was brought about through brilliant and painstaking work of scientists all over the world, including many men and women here today. It was not even 50 years ago that a young Englishman named Crick and a brash, even younger American named Watson first discovered the elegant structure of our genetic code. The Human Genome Project was conceived by the National Academy of Sciences and then put into action in 1990 by the National Institutes of Health and the Department of Energy with funding from Congress. It brought together researchers from around the world in an attempt to map all human genes. It competed against a privately funded effort to do the same, led by Solera Genomics and Craig Venter. And in the end, the two groups shared credit. The international group's draft was published in Nature in 2001, with a genome some 90% complete. And Craig Venter's private effort published its draft in Science at the same time. In drug development circles, it was hoped that the genome would open the door to new targets against disease. And as the project neared completion, investors piled into biotech companies that were mining the genome. New, unknown biotechs went public at eye-popping valuations and then watched their shares double or triple on the first day of trading. Those already public saw share prices increase by 300, 500, 700% over the course of 1999, and many of them took advantage by raising hundreds of millions of dollars. ISIS, savvy as it was, began to point out in its filings and external communications that sequencing the genome would likely further their anti-sense efforts. 
Eventually, that investor enthusiasm around genomics found ISIS. Uh, Karen Lundstedt, who was head of CorpCom in those days, and I were in L.A. trying to raise money and feeling hopeless. And about midday, um, a, a fund manager that we were talking to says, you know, your stock's at 40. And I, I said, no, you mean four. You know, 40. And sure enough, the stock was at $40 a share. So we went out and raised money. Indeed, ISIS's stock closed as high as $39 early in 2000. And the company managed to raise about $27 million in the first quarter. The money kept the engine going, kept the doors open, and ISIS could turn to the pipeline. It now owned Alcaforsen outright. Though the first Crohn's trial had failed, and ISIS had shut down the rheumatoid arthritis and kidney transplant programs to save money, it pushed ahead with a drug in a topical formulation for psoriasis and an enema for ulcerative colitis. Neither would amount to anything. So the next great hope in the pipeline was the cancer compounds it had been developing with Novartis before the discovery of the data fraud. Novartis had returned rights after phase two trials, saying the data were not what we expected. ISIS, however, liked one of those compounds in non-small cell lung cancer. The phase two study had shown benefit in a trial of 15 patients. In the fall of 2000, ISIS dosed the first patient in a phase three trial of the drug, by then called Affinitac. The problem, as usual, was money. ISIS would need yet another partner to help pay for trials. It found one in Eli Lilly, which signed a deal with ISIS in the late summer of 2001 that had a total potential of $400 million, including some loan money, with the two companies agreeing to collaborate on Antisense for four years. That year, ISIS also signed a three-year deal with the biotech flagship Amgen, and one with Merck for a second-generation preclinical Antisense drug aimed at diabetes. Stan told the New York Times that the Eli Lilly deal was a great revalidation of antisense and noted that 2001 was a year in which pharma companies returned to the technology because it was coming of age. By this time, ISIS had become the unquestioned intellectual property leader in the field. Hybridon, which had been based on Paul Zemesnik's founding technology and helped along mightily by the chemistries of Subhir Agrawal, was in deep financial difficulty and ISIS and Hybridon agreed to cross-license their antisense patents in the spring of 2001. The contract called for ISIS to put in around $35 million in cash and stock, but that brought access to a key advance. This is Sabir Agarwal talking about the deal. Uh, there was an uh, event happened where in uh, 2000, year 2000, late, uh, we had a patent issued on uh, GAPMA technology, which is very broad. And, uh, and that sort of led um, oh. a call from uh, ISIS. So then ISIS called and said, we, we see your patent. We want to work in this space too. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's collaborate. And you guys were fine with that. Hybridon was fine. I think in those years, uh, antisense wheel was at the bottom. Um, compounds had failed. Money had gotten tight uh, where, um, yes, it was very difficult and dark period. At the time, ISIS had about 700 issued patents, and it picked up only about 60 in the deal. But the gem was the IP around the Gapmer technology. Hybridon had wanted to try combining into one antisense molecule the desirable parts of a phosphothioate oligonucleotide with selected parts from a two-prime phosphothioate oligoribonucleotide. This new mixed-backbone oligonucleotide was called a hybrid, or a Gapmer. And the patents around this Gapmer technology were what ISIS picked up in the Hybridon deal. 
ISIS felt it was going to be key to its second-generation drugs. When announcing the cross-licensing, Stan told the biotech trade publication BioWorld that Hybridon had the last meaningful patent estate in antisense that we don't own, and added that the deal finishes what we set out to do, which is to own everything that is important in antisense. Hybridon, for its part, felt the deal would help keep the space alive, Agarwal told me. If Hybridon wasn't going to be able to pursue antisense much longer, as he feared, then maybe ISIS could carry the flame. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. If 2001 was a year when Anisense came of age, as Stan had said, the maturity didn't last long. Late in 2002, Merck returned rights to ISIS's diabetes drug, barely a year and a half after licensing it. The company said they would continue to work on other programs, but everyone watching knew what the rejection meant. Merck saw no value in the compound. And then, as if ISIS was mired in a losing streak, its newest hope for a truly meaningful drug crashed and burned. We put Affinitac into phase three, unblinded it, and it was an abject failure. And there were lots of reasons to think it was working, um, but it complete failure. In March 2003, the companies announced that the 616 patient trial of Affinitac in non-small cell lung cancer showed no difference in survival rate between patients receiving chemotherapy versus those receiving chemo and Affinitac. This was the primary endpoint of the trial. The failure was a second, highly public implosion, yet Stan insisted to the New York Times that the data tells you antisense works. And then he grew defiant, saying, we pioneered antisense, we own it, we are going to complete the work we set out to complete. A second, similarly structured Affinitac trial was ongoing, but that would fail in 2004, just as everyone expected it to. The first trial failure was the one that battered the company's stock, dropping it as low as $2.50 a share. And this time, there's no genomics bubble to rescue it. By June 2003, Lilly and Isis had dissolved their manufacturing agreement around Affinitac, and Isis also cut staff again, releasing about 9% of its workforce. Most of those positions related to manufacturing or commercializing Affinitac. To save additional money, ISIS dropped a couple of earlier stage programs from development and would drop a couple more in 2004. At the end of that year, ISIS had more than $100 million in cash reserves, but posted an annual net loss of about $143 million. The math was very clear. In an early 2005, 
ISIS let go another 160 employees, about 40% of the company. It also closed a research facility in Singapore and consolidated its real estate footprint in San Diego. Stan, as he often did, turned to Lynn Parshall. If the R&D engine was the brain of ISIS, then money was the blood, and Lynn had always been responsible for the blood. So we, we raised money at every critical time, difficult markets, you know, creative financings. Um, you know, that's what my job was. And I think, again, in terms of the primacy of the science and the medicine, my job was to not bother the people doing the real work, the science and the medicine, with, with that to just take care of it, to just make sure when they needed the money, it was going to be there. <laughs> and, um, and it was, and we did a great job of doing that. I mean, he, you keep saying we, but Stan was like, we needed the money and Lynn went out and got it. Well, that, that was my job. <laughs> that was my job. I did a good job at it. Lynn spent a month and a half on the road in both the U.S. and Europe and got a deal done. The company raised $51 million in 2005 by selling shares at $4.25 a piece, a woefully low price. But so be it. They were alive. Beyond oligonucleotides, ISIS was open to targeting RNA in other ways, too. And way back in 1996, Stan had seen an avenue for bringing in some government funding. He approached Dave Ecker about it. At that time, um, DARPA was reaching out to the biotech community for new ideas that related to uh, biodefense, mm -hmm. biosecurity. They were real worried about a biological weapons attack. And they, they, they put out, a, there was a fax that came to uh, Stan. And uh, anybody that has an idea related to this, um, uh, submit a proposal. So he, he said he almost threw it in the trash, but he brought it over and he gave it to me. And he said, you know, you might be interested in this. You have some, some new ideas and we can potentially get extramural funding from the government as opposed to partners. And so, but at that time, there was a lot of revelations about RNA having these exquisite tertiary structures. And, and, and I says, well, if we think of ourselves not as an oligonucleotide company, but a company that targets RNA, Maybe we can think about new strategies to target RNA with different kinds of molecules. And so I started the program, or I, I wrote a proposal for a program, and I sent it to DARPA, and, and I got a rejection letter. And I, um, I remembered it. I wasn't real happy with taking no for an answer, so I wrote another letter to the program manager explaining why not funding this was going to be a bad idea. And then I, I, I was on one of our business trips with our Japan partners. I remember I was in Tokyo, and I get this call from um, uh, DARPA. It was a program manager named Sean Jones, and he said, uh, uh, "I like your 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 letter, and I like your um, uh, willingness not to take no for an answer, and I'm going to fund this." DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, threw some money at ISIS and Dave Ecker created a unit he called IBIS Therapeutics. He brought in some chemists, put to use some new analytic methodologies, and began work. But after the attacks on the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center on September 11, 2001, and the ensuing anthrax mailings in the U.S., DARPA fully contracted with IBIS to develop a detection device for biowarfare agents. 
Ibis eventually created an all-purpose device that could detect anything, Ecker told me. And Ecker began looking for diagnostic partners. In 2007, Ibis placed eight instruments called the Ibis T5000 Biosensor System around the country. In early 2008, Abbott invested $20 million to work with Ibis on the system. This was yet another example of the ways ISIS fought to keep the lights on when investors weren't all that interested in antisense. For these were dark years, as Sabir Agrawal said. The antisense field continued to shrink, and in 2005, Hybridon gave up the battle. The company had been burdened by debt, and investors weren't interested in taking another run at antisense. They wanted something new, Agrawal told me, and Hybridon changed its name to IDERA to highlight a focus on a technology called toll-like receptors, which was linked to activating innate immunity in mammals and for which Bruce Butler would share the Nobel Prize in 2011. Genta still remained, but it had long struggled financially, and in 2004, its drug, Genesense, based on a phosphorothioate chemistry targeting the production of BCL2, was rejected by an FDA panel as a melanoma treatment. And then it failed a phase three trial in multiple myeloma. Few had any hope left for the drug or the company. So Isis was now clearly the king of the mountain. But that image, Isis standing on a peak framed by the sky, doesn't seem accurate for what was happening. Perhaps more fitting to say Isis was the remaining player trudging alone through the valley of antisense. It was difficult to keep morale up during this long period, and Stan needed to find a way to put all that failure behind the company and get employees looking ahead. As soon as you get through that, then you have to generate a new dream. People live for dreams. Mm-hmm. And people like us have to dream. That's, that, there is nothing else to go to work for when you do the things we do. It's a dream, right? So you have to give people, then you have to give them a, a, another galvanic vision of, you know, here's where we are, this is where we can be, and this is what we've got to do to get there. And it can't be pie in the sky. It has to be Here's where we are. Here's, here's the truth of where we are. Here's where I hope we can get. And here are the five steps I'm going to take tomorrow to get us there. The new dream for ISIS partially came from Brett Monia. He was head of ISIS's oncology drug discovery program at the time and had been thinking about the company's direction ever since Novartis revealed the data fraud around their partnered cancer program years before. It, it, it was a difficult time for the company. It really was. But, you know, something good came of this, believe it or not, Brady. It, it sounds it sounds crazy, but when this data started um, emerging, you know, the fact that we had to go to such high doses to show activity in animal models, and we had some clinical studies not, not showing success, I started questioning whether or not we were ready to tackle cancer with yeah. our technology. And um, I started asking, where can we apply our technology the best for drug discovery. And um, one, one, one thing that I knew, one, one thing that we knew, is that our, tech, our, our drugs, our antisense generation two drugs, work very well in the liver. And as I was thinking about where, do, where, do we, where can we have success, where can we show reproducible activity at low doses, it was in the liver. Brett put together a small group within the company and began to look at what diseases might be targeted through the liver. That opened up new areas, diabetes, heart disease, and cardiovascular disease, and eventually a promising second-generation antisense compound known as mipomersin. It was aimed at familial 
hypercholesterolemia, an inherited condition that causes dangerously high cholesterol levels. The other part of the new dream was the second-generation antisense drugs Brett just mentioned. Alcaforsen was still in the clinic for a handful of indications, but no one expected much from it. And indeed, ISIS outlicensed the compound in 2007 to Atlantic Healthcare for pennies on the dollar. In fact, including the phase three failures of Alcaforsen and Affinitac, just about everything ISIS had built with its first-generation phosphorothioate chemistry had died on the vine. There was no sense in considering that version of the technology any longer. As Stan had long said, the problem of antisense was a chemical one. ISIS had not fixed the chemical problem well enough with its early efforts. But the company hoped for improvement by looking away from cancer, and also by using the two-prime methoxyethyl gapmer technology. Here's Frank Bennett. Yeah, so the first generation is DNA that's been modified with uh, one of the uh, oxygens is replaced with sulfur. It's called a phosphorothioid modification. And um, that was important for us to prevent the DNA from being very rapidly degraded. And it does improve it. You know, so DNA normally is degraded within five minutes. Um, with this phosphorothioate modification, we turn DNA from five minutes to maybe uh, 24 to 48 hour survival. And, and so that opened the door. That was really the critical modification that allowed us to uh, form the company around. And then uh, what we identified uh, early on, and it was known uh, that you could do chemical modifications on the sugar uh, to further enhance binding affinity. And, and so we did a whole series of chemical modifications and that came, uh, identified this 2 prime methoxyethyl uh, or MO modification that gave us about a tenfold improvement in potency of the drug, but also it um, made the drug more stable. So instead of uh, having a, a you know, two, uh, one to two day uh, tissue half-life, it went from uh, one to two, maybe even three weeks in some cases, tissue half-life. In short, their second-generation antisense was more potent and lasted longer, which meant less drug was needed per dose, and that decreased side effects. The result was that Isis's antisense 2.0 was an improvement on three levels, potency, duration, and safety. So for all the bad news and the depressed stock price, in some ways, Isis's turn towards second-generation antisense felt like a rebirth, a shedding of the past and moving forward. Outside the walls, though, Amid the investor skepticism, it wasn't clear anyone was still paying serious attention to a technology that had been discovered nearly 30 years ago and had posted zero success stories. Especially because there was always a shiny new thing to be excited about in biotech. Antisense had once been that shiny thing in the late 1980s, but the RNA field was exploding. Investors had also begun to chase something called RNA interference. A seminal paper on the technology had been published in 1998 by Andrew Fire and Craig Mello, who would win the 2006 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for their discovery. RNAi, as it is called, involves double-stranded RNAs that silence messenger RNA and stop protein production. Long, double-stranded RNA molecules are naturally occurring and are called microRNAs. They act like sponges, mopping up messenger RNA molecules in cells as a form of regulation. They were first characterized in 1993, but researchers were now crafting synthetic, shortened versions of natural microRNA molecules, calling them small interfering RNAs. The small interfering RNA method was quickly recognized as a more potent silencer of gene expression than antisense. 
Unlike Antisense, it immediately worked in one academic experiment after another. This suddenly made ISIS's efforts look antique, Stan told me, and biotech investors turned their heads toward RNA interference. In 2002, a company named Alnylam Pharmaceuticals was formed in Cambridge, Massachusetts, around small interfering RNAs. An extraordinarily short period of time for Fire and Mellow's breakthrough to be converted into a commercial platform. ISIS, a science company through and through, was watching all this. Given its expertise in manipulating single-stranded oligonucleotides, ISIS thought it could also block single strands of microRNA, using what was called anti-microRNAs, or antagomeres, to fight disease. Alnylam also saw the opportunity present in microRNA, though its technology was based on double-stranded oligos. Before long, the two companies were bumping up against each other, and a patent battle loomed. To avoid this, in 2007, they formed an independent company they named Regulus, located with ISIS in Carlsbad. Here is Cleanthus Xanthopoulos, the founding CEO. They came to realization sometime in end of 06, beginning of 07, that neither of, of uh, companies felt that the microRNA fit their overall uh, focus that they have in, in antisense and, and siRNA, respectively. Mm-hmm. But the opportunity was huge, and if they could find a way to combine um, uh, sources, they could, they could create something very significant. Alnylam invested $10 million into the initial company to balance out the overwhelming patent estate that ISIS contributed, Synthopolis said. ISIS owned 51% of the new entity, and between the two companies, Regulus was granted a license to more than 900 patent and patent applications. As media and investor attention moved to the RNAi technology, some observers began to wonder if ISIS was attempting a rebrand to catch the investor wave, an old dog trying to learn a new trick. Stan found this offensive. When asked in 2004 about the perception that ISIS was trying to relabel itself amid a changing RNA field, Stan told BioWorld that people thinking that way were either stupid or liars. He added that he had not known to call it RNAi when founding ISIS because the term hadn't been invented yet. And he added, rather dryly, that one of ISIS's central failures was that it had not been very good at coining exciting terms. These kind of direct, pugnacious comments were what made Stan Crook's name in biotech circles. He was always upfront, yet unbendable in his focus. He could be affable and funny, both in person and on conference calls, yet the public record is also littered with the quotes of a man alternating between cocksure and exasperated. When Merck returned rights to ISIS's diabetes drug, Stan pointed the finger back at its former partner, saying the drug wasn't given priority, that it already should have reached clinical trials. When discussing the Merck and Eli Lilly deals of 2001 with BioWorld, Stan pointed out that scientists knew the potential of antisense well ahead of Wall Street, a side-eye comment for sure. And after the horrendous Affinitac trial, Stan dismissed the failure to BioWorld as just a bump in the road. This disgruntlement, mixed in with Stan's at times seemingly unfounded optimism about antisense, made it look like he was either irritated by the long list of setbacks and failures or blithe about it. Whichever it was, it was getting hard for observers to take Stan seriously. Of course, Stan wasn't alone in his devotion. ISIS had been created in his likeness and adopted his personality. Like Stan, ISIS employees were there for one thing and one thing only, to develop Antisense until a platform delivered on its grand scientific potential. The core unit that had been there in the early days still felt this, 
and anyone new had to buy into that dream too, or they would not be staying long. Here's Lynn Parshall talking about ISIS's culture. And, and, it's, a, and it's a meritocracy. Um, so, you know, people, you, you know, I didn't have any scientists or MDs reporting to me most of the time, you know, in my mm-hmm. business functions. But, you know, people would listen to me when I had good ideas. And I, you know, sometimes I had crazy ideas. Um, but across the board, I mean, that was sort of the nature of the company. People were expected to contribute ideas. They were expected to think hard and say, gosh, does that thing that somebody just said makes sense to you? Does it not make sense to you? And if it didn't, you're expected to say that. Say, wait, I don't understand that. Are, are you saying this? Or, you know, what if we did something different? And that really is the backbone of a, of a culture that can, number one, be tremendously creative, number two, be tremendously efficient, and really um, persevere and pull together to tackle hard problems and hard issues and, and tough times sometimes. Stan had built a company of employees who constantly challenged each other. They were the world's leading experts on antisense, and they were sure they knew what observers and analysts did not. To hear the growing skepticism, to listen to it at investor conferences, and then still keep pushing required a kind of deafness. It bothered all of us that, that the technology was so demeaned and, and that we were so dismissed. Uh, I mean, it, it, yeah, it, it, you know, I think it affected every one of us, me more yeah. than anyone else, but all of us. And if the doubt did creep inside those walls, there was always the science to fall back on. The principles of DNA that drove life on this planet were the very assurances ISIS needed to stay the course. Here's Dave Ecker. The, the ace in our pocket was the specificity that could be achieved by Watson-Crick hybridization was a fundamental law of physics, that, that it, was, it was, or chemistry, whatever you want to call it, um, uh, that, that as long as that was foundationally true, we were going to find a way to work on that, work around that, and be able to make specific drugs. The ace in their pocket would forever guide their decisions. By never losing sight of the science, ISIS could function as its own anti-sense cult in a sea of non-believers. Here's Lynn again. Interestingly, the other thing that was fundamental to the company's culture, um, which all of the founders contributed to, was passion about the technology, passion about the fact that it would succeed, mm-hmm. and extraordinary perseverance because of that passion. And I think that's what got the company through because you had to believe. You know, if you didn't believe, you were going to go somewhere else and find something maybe that was easier or, you know, not a long shot. None of the core, save for Chris Mirabelli, had gone somewhere else. That was remarkable for a company nearing 20 years of existence without one success to its name. And the core kept the company stable through this fallow period. But of course, there was turnover. And it wasn't always driven by the difficulty of the task at hand. Former employees of ISIS, who did not want to be recorded or named, told me it could also be a difficult place to work. Everyone at ISIS understood that Stan was brilliant. The trade-off was that he also sometimes dressed down employees if he found their work subpar, or interrogated their science in ways that left their cheeks flaming. 
These people didn't deserve to be embarrassed in that way, I was told, and for certain, over the years, people left the company because of it. Stan himself knows this. Learning to control my temper is a work in progress, he told me. And he admitted that people at ISIS know when I'm not happy. There have been many times that he snapped at colleagues, saying things he wished he hadn't, then gone home and banged his head against the wall, he said, because he made someone feel stupid unnecessarily. He has started mornings by coming into the building, seeking out those employees, and apologizing. Stan likes a good joke. He loves the goof off. But even he thinks that part of the reason he jokes so much is to help offset the tension and the pressure he knows he can induce in his employees. Stan once told me that having an enemy can help unite a company, but that it doesn't help if the enemy is the rest of the world. That was how it was beginning to feel to ISIS, that the world was against them. They were trying to do something big. People should have applauded that. Instead, it felt that many were eagerly waiting for ISIS to fall. And I never dreamt that there would be so much emotion focused on hoping we'd fail. It never, in my wildest imaginings, that I think that people would be rooting against us. Skeptical, sure. Laugh at us, sure. Dismiss us, sure. But to actually want us to fail makes no sense. Well, and maybe maybe I polarized people. Maybe the whole idea was polarizing. Maybe it divided people into camps. It will never work. It, give them a chance. Who knows? Maybe I polarized people, Stan said. The truth is, he did. Jeremy Levin, CEO of Ovid Therapeutics and former chairman of the Biotechnology Innovation Organization, told me an anecdote that perfectly embodied how Stan could come across to those who didn't know him and how his demeanor could split the room. Levin was employed with Novartis at the time as global head of business development and strategic alliances. Stan visited the Novartis Institutes of Biomedical Research, also called NIBR, to see about the companies working together on a new project. Levin doesn't remember exactly where the companies were in their long collaborative history, and Stan doesn't remember the incident at all. But during the discussion, it became clear that Stan wanted what he always wanted, which was for Novartis to name the target it was interested in and ISIS would go develop the antisense molecule to address that target. Novartis, however, wanted to send their folks into ISIS's facility in San Diego and work alongside Stan's group, a structure sometimes referred to as buying the company without buying the company. Stan wanted no part of it. He said, you just don't understand. You guys will never understand, and I don't think it's worth my while spending time trying to convince you. I remember that so well, it was remarkable. And he said it in a very gentle but direct way. And I guess because my Israeli side likes what's called dugri. Dugri means direct. I actually liked it. Yeah. Uh, I think there were people around me who were shocked and thought he was rude. I didn't. I said he's being very direct. Uh, was he right? He was right. It's very difficult for a large corporation which has got a series of multiple programs that are ongoing to take a risk in one that they truly don't understand. Did he then, like, walk out? Pretty much. We, um, this was a discussion where we'd had some really great... I was a real champion to bring this into the company, and Stan was keen to come and visit our new site, which was in, in Nibba. And he arrived by himself. He was completely by himself. Hmm. And... I find it so interesting that he came by himself for some reason. 
came by himself, talked, and then when he realized he wasn't going to get what he wanted, walked out. There's a, there's a high degree of respect for somebody who does that. It means that he knew what, in his mind, what he wanted for his company. So then he says, I, I, I guess I'm going to go, and he left? Pretty much so. And what, what did the room think? What did you think? Well, you know, I sort of smiled because this was not a, this was not a typical of Stan. And it, that type of an abrupt reaction was gentle but forceful, and there was no screaming, no shouting. It was just no. And you ran up against that wall, and when that no happened, it was no. And there was nothing more to be said. Levin likened Stan's decision to an iron fist in a velvet glove. Stan, as Levin said, had impressed some in the room and offended others. That was common. Rarely did someone meet Stan Crook and not have an opinion. It's an interesting thing to be a believer when the tide of public opinion has turned away. For Stan, Antisense remained as elegant and beautiful as ever, and he was certain the chemical hurdles would be overcome. The outside world, however, had plenty of evidence to think otherwise. ISIS's many pipeline failures, for instance, and eventual washing out of its slate of first-generation drugs. The exiting of the NSN stage by other high-profile companies, who surely must have seen something they didn't like. The pharmaceutical partners ending research collaborations and handing back compounds. It was easy to look at all this and conclude that the NSN's technology was a mess. And yet, here was Stan Crook, 62 years old now, still talking it up, still crowing about it, still seeking and getting new pharmaceutical partners, and then telling the press that the next drug was the one. His persistence made him seem like some sort of aging carnival barker, holding open a tent flap, endlessly shouting to passersby to come see the greatest show on earth. But he'd been saying the same thing for nearly two decades now, and those within earshot had already stuck their heads into the tent and seen all they needed to see. And now they were just tuning him out. Thank you to Stan Crook, now and always. Thanks to Sabir Agarwal for talking about Hybridon. To Dave Ecker, Lynn Parshall, and Brett Monia for their memories of ISIS. To Cleanthus Xanthopoulos for his thoughts on Regulus. To Frank Bennett for discussing antisense chemistries. To Jeremy Levin for his insight. Sound mix and original theme by Brian Flood. All art created by Aaron DeWalt. Hope Lies in Dreams was written and produced by me, Brady Huggett. Go to the homepage of Nature Biotechnology to find the landing page for this podcast, which includes a list of sources, historical photos, and a transcript of this and the previous four chapters. Chapter six will be out in a week. Until then, 